from 744 Ostrom Avenue. I'm Gael Phobes, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. It's Tuesday, September 17th, 2019. The biggest matchup of the football season ends in a 41-6 Syracuse loss, beat writer Andrew Graham on what went down in the Dome. Mounting pressure on Jewel as an SU student joins the lawsuit fight and growing push to limit e-cigarette use. Filtration innovation, we sit down with an SU student who's turning a millennia-old clothing item into a life-saving product. And rebounding from a troubling diagnosis, a local football player regains his footing. Team sprint out onto the field, and that does it from the Loud House. The Orange come up way short of another upset of the defending national champions. Clemson 41, Syracuse 6, as the Orange fall to 1-2 in 2019. A hotly anticipated homecoming to a sold-out dome against the top-ranked team in the nation, Clemson, ended in a 41-6 loss. Next to me now is the DO's very own Andrew Graham, who holds the coveted title of football beat writer. We thought the podcast after the big game would be a prime opportunity to walk through what I think many believe to be one of the biggest games of the semester. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Syracuse entered the Dome after a pretty objectively humiliating performance in Maryland, a loss of 43 to the Terrapins. Uh, what were people expecting out of the Clemson matchup going into it? I think it's, it's, there's a mixed bag. I know for myself personally, I didn't expect Syracuse to win. I did not even expect it to be close like the past two seasons have been. But I think I expected to see basically what any football coach would tell you is like look for the things that went wrong going better. The hope was to see the safeties and linebackers play better against the run, to see the running game going a little better, to see the offensive line protect DeVito a little better, to see turnovers cut back. Some of it we saw was good. I think the passing game was still okay. The running game couldn't get going. Syracuse couldn't protect DeVito. But the defense, I think, played solid for about two and a half quarters and when your offense only scores six points and you can hold the team to 17 you've done about all you can do to stay in the game so I don't think I expected Syracuse to win or even cover the spread sort of give an idea of like upset not upset but expecting them to really have shored up the things that went so wrong in that blowout and some of it they did and some of it was I like think of the offensive line and I don't know how much you can really that group just improves naturally and how much you can just from one week to the next make them that much better to face the number one team in the country i think for syracuse fans no bigger was the frustration than inside the red zone it really felt like time and time again the orange got within striking distance of the end zone but the touchdowns were just too much to ask could you walk me through some of those moments as they happened right so in the first half uh and i asked babers this after the game about sort of his thought process between he had two opportunities where he theoretically could have gone for it on like fourth and four, fourth and goal from the four, something like that. And he basically said in the first half, down 14 nothing, and looking at you're going into halftime, you're going to get chances in the second half, you'd much rather have points on the board because, you know, 17-6 is a lot better than 17 nothing at half. This field goal, a 23-yarder on the near hash, snapped down the hold from Cooney is good, and so is the kick. Six points for the Orange, and they're within 11 to the number one team in the nation, Clemson, with two minutes on the second quarter clock. They did have opportunities in the red zone in the second half. Obviously, the first one was a quick change off Chris Frederick's interception where Tommy DeVito just threw it right back, and that was that was probably the most crushing moment of the game because that was a big swing early in the third quarter, sort of like... Syracuse had done what it needed to do, hung around to like get that swing that it needed to like make it a game, and then just 
in that moment did not. Tommy DeVito is playing with house money right now. He calms the Carrier Dome crowd down. He's got two running backs in the backfield with him. He takes the first and 10 snap, back to pass. Looks left, he's flushed out right. Throw on the run, it's picked off by Clemson. At the five, cutting forward, out of bounds, he goes. Holy change of events. And the last one off the, the Trill Williams interception where Syracuse ran four straight times, uh, handoff, handoff, bootleg, and DeVito scrambled. That one was sort of the moment where it felt like when DeVito bailed out of throwing the wheel route and ran up the middle and just got eaten up. Fourth and goal at the three. Abdul Adams is the running back in the backfield. DeVito under center. He takes the snap, fakes the handoff to Elmore, cuts into the middle, dives for the pylon. Is he in? No, he is not. Clemson stands up Tommy DeVito at the one-yard line. A turnover on downs. Syracuse can't buy a ticket to the end zone tonight. On fourth down, you kind of felt like that was Syracuse's last real chance to score a touchdown and put some game pressure on Clemson because at that point it was 24-6, to and you really felt like the game was, was very solidly going to go to Clemson after that. So head coach Gino Baver said uh, in the in that post-game press conference, and this was the uh, the quote that was used in the headline, that a lot of meat was left on the bone to maybe look at this loss in a constructive way. Which players to you showed the most promise or, or maybe that the, the greatest appetite for a rebound going forward? Right. I think Mo Neal is always a guy who's poised to have a big game. He's had a couple of receptions that he took for long, long runs and Syracuse couldn't really get the run game going against Clemson's front seven, but that's not that surprising. I think against Western Michigan, Syracuse will be committed after two weeks of not being able to run the ball at all, committed to trying to run the ball against a team they feel they should be able to, to physically sort of outmatch up front. And defensively, I would look for Kendall Coleman and Alton Robinson to get going again just because they. I don't think they had a sack yesterday. I don't know if either of them even had a QB hit. Not to say they weren't, you know, disruptive and productive. Alton Robinson deflected a pass. They, they do other things, but I think for the, this defense to really be as good as it can be, they have to be getting sacks and hitting the quarterback pretty regularly. If we look at people who have promised, I think it's also important to look at DeVito's performance, which I think for many will be the subject of scrutiny. What concrete steps does he need to take to improve? I think that's like a really hard question to answer just because I, I've tr tried to sort of do my best in understanding how how Tommy sort of learns and you know processes and improves himself. Everyone's different, so I can't say that, you know, Tommy, I just don't know well enough what he thinks he needs to work on, what the coaches like want him to work on. I know one of the big things he's talked about in the past is, you know, taking a little bit off the ball, not throwing it as hard all the time, and he's he's definitely done better with that in recent weeks. I think the biggest thing for him, and this is what Dino has preached, is just, you know, continuing to stick with it, and it's, people forget this is only his fifth or sixth like sixth college appearance, third start. I mean, he has not played much college football. It's been two years since he's been a starting, three years almost since he's been a starting quarterback. So, I, I mean, I think it takes time. He's still a redshirt sophomore. The kid's got loads of potential. I don't think that's really the debate. It's just a matter of, you know, he throws those interceptions when you see he could have thrown it away or, you know, misses a deep route and goes underneath or, or vice versa, tries to force a deep route when he has something open underneath. And those are the things that, like Dino said, he's going to make mistakes and have experiences. And if he learns from those, he'll keep getting better. And I think to date so far, he's done okay. I think the the biggest concern right now is 
seeing him cut back on turnovers, though. Um, and I think it's probably good to put into context. Uh, he was playing against the number one ranked team he, in the nation. Number one ranked team in the nation, and uh, Brent Venables, Clemson's defensive coordinator, is maybe the best coordinator in college football. He had some crazy blitzes dialed up, and was just they were getting after Tommy all night. Then I think looking at Babers here, where does he want to put his focus as the team prepares uh, for next week in the matchup against Western Michigan um, and maybe the rest of the season? Uh, what What is he looking to improve upon? I would say the the to pick one thing from each side of the ball, and this is kind of what last year was a little bit, but uh, the linebackers in the offensive line, um, I think the linebackers actually played pretty well last night along with the safeties. Um, those are the groups that kind of got – got the brunt of Maryland's attack and sort of, you know, a bad angle here, a, a missed tackle and those from the back end and a guy gets a long run. Um, I think they played better against Clemson by and large. There were no real big plays. Clemson wasn't breaking off long runs or anything until, you know, the game sort of got out of hand. Um, so I would look for, you know, them to continue to shore up that in run defense. And I don't think Syracuse has worries about their pass defense at the moment. Um, and then the offensive line, I think, through three games. Um, eight sacks against Clemson is obviously unacceptable, and they'll tell you that. Um, but I'm not going to say – like, I don't want to say they didn't have a chance last night because I, that's wrong. They completely did. But it's the sort of thing where you would expect that Clemson to sort of overmatch them like they did and that, like, those guys are just, like, almost all going to be playing in the NFL and just, like, by the third quarter with an inexperienced – Inexperienced playing together offensive line, like up the middle, Syracuse has some guys who've played a lot of football, but against Clemson's defensive line, you got to be perfect almost, and they're just too young and too too early along in playing like with this group of five players to really expect them to hold off that defensive line for too long. So I think that's a big area where Syracuse will has known it's needed to, been trying to, and will continue to work to improve the offensive line. Thank you so much, Andrew. You can catch the rest of Andrew's coverage of Syracuse football on the Daily Orange website. Juul Labs, the popular e-cigarette maker, has come under mounting legal pressure in recent weeks as more than 400 reported cases of lung illnesses have been found to have a connection to vaping or e-cigarette use, including at least 41 vaping-related cases in New York State. Emma Fultz, who's an assistant news editor for the DO, recently wrote about an SU student who is suing the e-cigarette company for damages. Hello, Emma. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, it's good to be back. Could you tell me who Maxwell Berger is and what he's alleging in his lawsuit against Juul? Maxwell Berger is 22. He's a Syracuse University student, and he's currently suing Juul Labs after he suffered uh, what is called in the lawsuit catastrophic personal injuries, uh, which include a hemorrhagic stroke, Um, that left him paralyzed on the left side of his body, caused him to lose 50% of his vision in both eyes, um, and led to cognitive impairments and brain damage. Um, And that occurred in July of 2017. And so in July of 2019, he filed this lawsuit against Juul. um, And it's coming at a time when we're seeing a lot of reported uh, cases of illnesses possibly attributed to vaping um, and e-cigarette use. Um, And so his case is a little bit different in terms of the injuries that he experienced than what is being reported, but um, we're really at this moment in time where people are looking critically at the effects of e-cigarette use. So Maxwell's case seems to be a little bit different, at least from reading your article. It it looks like, I mean, he experienced a hemorrhagic stroke that paralyzed the left side of his body, caused him to lose half the vision in both his eyes, and led to cognitive impairments. That's not what we've exactly seen with the lung 
uh, illnesses that we've seen in some of these other uh, cases? Yeah, so at the nationwide level and at the state level, a lot of the reported cases um, are connected to uh, the use of a vape product that contains cannabis, and they're all experiencing um, severe lung illnesses. Maxwell, on the other hand, there was no mention of a lung illness in the lawsuit. We discussed the injuries that he's experienced, and they're just a bit different than what everyone is reporting right now. So it's, it's very interesting to see this new claim of illnesses that are possibly related to uh, use of e-cigarettes. Just to give some perspective to people, how often was Maxwell using his Juul? So the lawsuit claims that Maxwell became first aware of Juul advertisements in mid-2015 when he was still a senior in high school. Uh, his friends used e-cigarette products and he slowly became introduced to the products and started using himself around June of 2015. Um, and the lawsuit claims that he very quickly developed an addiction to uh, e-cigarette use, particularly Juul use. By the time he had his stroke in July of 2017, he had been going through about two uh, Juul pods a day, and Juul pods are the inserts that you use to vape the product with. Um, and so two Juul pods a day, and very quickly after using it, he had been, by the time that he was using two pods a day, he had had an addiction to the product for so quite some time. And to give people an idea, how much nicotine uh, is in a single Juul pod? That's not quite a... Uh, that information is not quite certain at this point. Um, some experts say, and this is mentioned in the lawsuit as well, that one Juul pod contains as much nicotine as two packs of cigarettes, um, but that information is not uh, conclusive. Juul has actually reached out to the Daily Orange. Yeah, so the spokesperson for Juul essentially said that underage use of e-cigarettes, and particularly Juul, is antithetical to their company's mission, and that they have taken several measures to prevent underage use by um, banning the sale of popular flavors like mango, cream, and fruit in physical stores. Uh, they're available online, and the online website also has 21 plus age controls. Um, I went on the website and was able to get past the controls pretty quickly, although I didn't purchase any products, so I don't know any of how they work there, but um, I was able to at least get on the website, even though I myself am under 21. And so they said that those um, initiatives were part of their plan to address e-cigarette use and that the case alleging otherwise is um, obviously going to be challenged. So they say it's antithetical to, I guess, what that company stands for. I guess that they're promoting it as a, as an alternative to people who are already using cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Again, anecdotally, you walk around campus. To my knowledge, there, there are some people that are over 21, but there are clearly a lot of people under 21 that are using it. Do we have any idea of uh, what teenagers in the area, uh, what what percent of them have used uh, a product like Juul? Well, I spoke with Karen Johnson of the Onondaga County Health Department. She's the coordinator of their tobacco program. And she said they don't have uh, statistics for Onondaga County um, in terms of e-cigarette and Juul use, but in New York State in 2018, 27.4% of high schoolers uh, used e-cigarettes. And so it's a very prevalent issue within young uh, demographics. And uh, Karen was actually saying that uh, she thinks younger demographics think that Juul use is just water vapor. It's you know not as harmless as um, one might think. And the lawsuit alleges that Berger didn't know that the products contained nicotine when he began using them. And the lawsuit also claims that Juul particularly advertises these products to younger demographics to attract them to the product. So even though it is technically marketed as a product for current adult smokers who are trying to quit smoking, the lawsuit claims that they are targeting youngster, young individuals through their advertisements. 
what we've seen outside of the lawsuit is a lot of mounting pressure among legislators. Nationally speaking, President Trump has seemed to be pretty forward in support of a potential ban. Uh, what have we seen in New York State? What what has the governor been, been saying about this? So Governor Andrew Cuomo held a press conference and announced that he'd be uh, advancing legislation to ban flavored e-cigarettes, which former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb said that the flavor directly appeals to the younger audience and the younger demographics. So the New York State legislature is going to be taking steps to ban these popular flavors, and obviously the state health department is continuing to look at all of these cases of uh, lung illnesses reported and possibly attributed to e-cigarette use as well. We see that in, in Maxwell's lawsuit, it is not just the sort of medical impact or the sort of like impact it had on his own body, but uh, it had an effect on how he interacts with the people in his life. Yes, uh, so his injuries have affected his emotional well-being as well. Uh, the lawsuit claims that he's become more withdrawn, um, depressed and aggressive with his family and friends um, as he continues to work through all of the injuries that he experienced as a result of using uh, e-cigarettes and jewel products. Thank you so much, Emma, for being on the podcast again. You can catch the rest of Emma's story, SU student sues Jewel after experiencing catastrophic injuries on the Daily Orange website. Nikita Chatterjee is an economics major here at Syracuse, and with her roommate Brianna Howard was a recipient of the first place $5,000 prize at this year's Invent at SU competition. Her invention was an adaptation of an age-old water filtration technique in India involving saris. She is here with me now. Hello, Nikita. Hi. So I think it'd be good for our listeners to understand the problem you are looking to tackle, which is, of course, water quality and filtration. Could you tell me a little bit about why that is so important and so significant? So my family grew up in India, so both of my parents are immigrants, and they experienced this issue of water quality firsthand. If you're not very wealthy in India, you don't have access to a lot of basic resources that are always available here in the United States. So the quality of water in India, even like when we go visit, like the family that we have there, it's always like, okay, like you can't drink this type of water. Like you can only drink this. And it's something that's just constantly on people's minds. So when we were thinking about the issue that we wanted to tackle, that was super important for me because my family experienced it. And to give people an idea, your family experienced it. Do you have an idea of like what the numbers are, like how, how many families experience this across India? So overall, 163 million people in India lack the access to clean water. 71% of that population goes to the hospital due to waterborne illnesses more than once a month. So the statistics are ridiculous. I think another important thing in your process of, of researching this and inventing this, saris traditionally worn are also used and, and have been used to filter water for many, many years. Mm-hmm. What sort of process do people go through or have people gone through using saris before and what effect does it have? So while we were doing our research, we found that saris are actually really great at filtering out cholera, which is a bacterial contaminant that causes like a lot of different diseases. And so we were like, okay, like this is great. It already does a job for us. And women already do it because it's something that they wear and because they have to travel to collect their water. It's just a convenient 
tool to filter their water on the spot. So women naturally or traditionally fold the cloth twice to create four different layers and then they just place it on the container and pour a bucket of water through and it filters out that larger debris. And then for your project, you adapted that method already. How did you go about that? What 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 are the processes that go into into filtering water the way that you made it? Mm-hmm. So we know that the sari already filters that large debris. We had to figure out, okay, how are we filtering out the micro contaminants that are causing a lot of these illnesses? So we created these pouches and each of them hold a disinfectant. And then we've inserted into the sari. So it looks like a cloth. It feels like a cloth. It's pretty light. It's portable but it's layered with these disinfectants so that when the women fold it like they already do, it not only goes through the sari to collect the large debris, but through the disinfectants to filter out those microcontaminants. Just if I heard you correctly, so would they use their the, the sari they already have and then they use the pouch? So no, it's a completely different device. Although it is still a sari, it's something completely separate than they, what they already own. Invented SU, it's an initiative by the university to encourage entrepreneurship and a Mm -hmm. research mindset. How were you involved in and Mm -hmm. how did you find it? So I had an opportunity fall of last year to be part of this woman entrepreneurship program with Capital One. The goal of that program was to come up with a solution for a low-income community. And so I automatically thought, you know, India, that's where my family is from. They have a lot of public health issues. And Brianna and I together came up with this idea of the water filter system. Invent at SU helped us so much because we got to physically build a tangible prototype. Up until Invent at SU was kind of a concept, an idea, but Invent at SU kind of helped us engineer that and like bring it to life. So Invent at SU was a great opportunity for us because now we have something that works, something that we can collect data on, something that we can like show to other people like, hey, if you don't understand me telling you the concept, like just try it out yourself. What, what are the next steps that you and, and Brianna are taking for this project? So in December, we plan on going to India to kind of introduce the device into the community, ask what they like, ask what they don't like, connect with nonprofits in the, in the area that are trusted by the community, connect with engineers in India, and we are, we've already made connections, so we're just going to go like meet them in person. But we're also here like at Syracuse, we're looking for an engineer to join our team and also a social media manager like for exposure. So that's kind of in the direction we're going right now. After ending last year's football season diagnosed with a staph infection, Jacob Valko's resilience is the subject of assistant copy editor Andrew Crane's reporting. So I think it's best if we begin on the morning of October 29th, 2018. Jacob Valko is at home. What happened next? Hey, Gal. So on that morning of October 29th, uh, Jacob Valko woke up in his bed and just couldn't move his left leg. It had been a, a buildup of pain for about two weeks, pain that started in his shoulder uh, with the separated shoulder on his right side, and then it worked its way down to the back and eventually to his upper leg. Basically that morning, he woke up, couldn't move, his dad rushes in, and they go to the upstate Galasano Children's Hospital where he was diagnosed with the staph infection. So at that point, the football season was over, but his career just was jeopardized because of the, the seriousness of staph infections. 
and just to give people an idea like how how severe is a staph infection it's, it's not like a, a normal bruise it's not like a normal injury no it's a it's a bacterial based infection where it works its way into the bloodstream and the severity of it depends upon how far it goes into the bloodstream staph infections have been fatal before but in the case of of Jacob Vaco, he, he was able to recover from it. To step back for a second, who is Jacob and wh- why is this staph infection so significant for him and probably the community that he's around? Jacob Vaco is a, a senior at Liverpool High School. It's um, in the, a suburb of Syracuse and he's a, a fullback and linebacker, but he's also one of the captains. Um, and the captain part is the most significant because he's been a starter on the team since since freshman year, started only at linebacker, but eventually worked his way into the uh, into the fullback position. And with this staph infection, he basically, his career in athletics in general was up in the air. Nobody really knew when he could come back. He was on crutches until December. And for Dave Mancuso, the head coach of Liverpool football, Vaco is a uh, a vital piece to his offense and defense. It's not just football that he plays. He's a wrestler and, and, and a lacrosse player. How did it affect those seasons? Were people sort of watching his recovery during those different sports to see, okay, is he going to make it back on the field in the fall? Yeah, so Jacob Vaco has played a lot of different sports throughout his life. Um, started in baseball, played that until, you know, when he was in his younger days, but also played basketball. He ran track, he wrestled, and played lacrosse as well. Um, and, and last year it was just wrestling and lacrosse that were up in the air. So he ended up missing the wrestling season. Um, Like I said before, he was on crutches until December, but he was able to make it back for lacrosse. And his father, Greg, said that he wasn't 100% until midway through the lacrosse season. But the type of athlete that Vaco is, is that he's built up this speed through lacrosse. Uh, He said, you know, skills from lacrosse, such as speed and agility are transferable to football. But in the end, they ended up saving his lacrosse season as well. How did he enter the season? Uh, How how did the coach see him? How did the team see him? What were people thinking and expecting coming from him? Basically, by the end of lacrosse season, he was more or less back to normal. Um, When I just kind of asked him about his progression over the summer, he said it was just getting back into the swing of things because, you know, he was back. He was not, you know, he says he was 100%, but, I mean, obviously you always have those 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 pains as a football player. So he he just stepped right back into that leadership role. Brandon Mancuso, the starting quarterback, told me a story about how at the home team pub in Syracuse right before the season, the uh, Jacob Vaco needed to, to fill his car up with gas, and he asked who, needed, who wanted to go with him, and Mancuso was there and said that he would go. And so in their car ride to get gas, Vaco explained to the Mancuso, the first-year starting quarterback, how to be a leader, how to lead the offense, how to get players to follow him. Because over the past three-plus years, that's exactly what Jacob has done with Liverpool. How did you find his story? The story actually came through a progression of beat writers. Um, Billy Hayne, the the high school football beat writer last year, had had covered Vaco as a game coverage and said that, you know, this guy needs to be your season preview because he is one of the most impactful players in Section 3 football. Maybe he doesn't have the most yardage. Maybe he doesn't have the, you know, the most, the prettiest stat line, but he is the centerpiece of this Liverpool team who has the chance to make a run to the state championship. And so I, I went out to a Liverpool practice and started talking with Jake and learned about this staph infection. It was something that I pursued in detail after I first talked with him. Um, whereas some stories you know about going into it, it was one of the ones that kind of transpired after. So talking with his dad, talking with you know coaches, talking with players, you kind of start to piece this narrative together that Vaco's career and life could have taken a distinct turn in the other direction from the staff infection. But if you were watching a practice or a game 
you would not know that this ever happens. So the to be able to tell this story from the perspective of looking back on it is very unique because all this happened, but he's back to where he was before. Um, and it's, it's just a very impactful story. Where does Jacob want to go? What, what are his goals and aspirations as he finishes out this season? So every, every high school player's goal is a Division One scholarship. And those are far and few between. If you look at the percentages of high school players who end up playing in Division One, the numbers are only slightly larger than the number that end up playing in the NFL. You know, it might be a D2 scholarship. It might be a D3 scholarship. So the, the goal is to play football in college. And but like his dad says, he's still got a lot of time to make that decision. Thank you so much, Andrew. You can catch the rest of Andrew's story. After dangerous bout with staph infection, Jacob Vaco is leading Liverpool football on the Daily Orange website. A big thank you to our reporters, both Andrews and Emma, our contributing editor, Lizzie, and Nikita for her story, and the good folks over at WAER for the play-by-play sound. You can catch new episodes of the Daily Orange podcast every Tuesday morning, and we'll see you right back here next Tuesday.